Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Rob Walcott is an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth, an adjunct professor of executive education at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, a managing partner with innovation strategy consultancy Clario. He is a regular contributor to Forbes regarding the impact of technology change on business, leadership, and society. He's the co-author of the book, Grow From Within, Mastering Corporate Entrepreneurship and Innovation. His work has appeared in prestigious global outlets, including MIT Sloan Management Review, where, by the way, two of his articles have ranked among the most downloaded of all time, Strategy Plus Business, Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, among many others. He's the co-founder and chairman of the World Innovation Network, TWIN, a network of senior executives dedicated to driving sustainable innovation. Rob brings together and embraces the value of learning and collaboration across industries. In this episode, Rob introduces us to at least two important strategic concepts that will change the way you think about strategy, innovation, and growth. He laid out a framework that shows that there are four primary models that your or really any company can follow to manage your growth plans. And he will arm you with a concept called proximity. Now, in full disclosure, I'm working on a book on this topic with Rob, but even if I weren't, I would say that this simple idea of his could be the unifying lens that clarifies what innovation projects you should be pursuing and which you should avoid if you want to lead the future. Stick around. Rob, thanks again for being here with us. Thanks for having me. This is great, Kaihan. So let's just start to get to know you a little bit more personally. I'd like you to complete the sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. You know, if you really know me, you'd know that I was right now thinking about that question because I'm intrigued by questions themselves about what they can elicit from people, where they lead us. Oftentimes, the question is even more interesting than the answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the second thing, if you really know me, you'd know that of paramount importance to me is trusted relationships, building a wide range and diverse range of trusted relationships around the world. It makes life a lot more interesting, a lot more exciting, and also a lot more effective. That reminds me of the work that you do with Twin Global. Is that part of the motivation there? Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's sort of a circuitous process because at the beginning, Twin, which I started back in 2002 at the Kellogg School of Management when I was uh, just a postdoc there. I just finished my doctoral dissertation. And the idea there was let's get some business executives leading innovation, trying to lead innovation or the companies together in small groups to talk to each other. And then the faculty would act as facilitators rather than lecturers or You know, I always thought it was great that as business school faculty, we can tell people how to run their businesses, but I felt that we might be able to learn something from people who are actually running businesses. So that's where it started and it grew. And one of the things we found was when we would throw in oddballs like venture capitalists or entrepreneurs or or musicians and artists and military leaders, people loved it. Everybody loved it. And they loved to connect with the business leaders. So that's how we grew into what became Kin Global, Global Summit. And then it grew beyond that to eventually become Twin Global, the World Innovation Network, which is where we are now. 
and we have active engagement from over 30 countries. And by active, I mean people, at least before the pandemic and God willing after, people get on a plane and they fly to Chicago every year to be together in person. You've been to a couple of our programs, mm -hmm. so you know what I'm talking about. So that whole twin thing is about building and maintaining an ecosystem of highly diverse relationships with people doing great things for the right reasons in the world. So this is a podcast on strategy. You're an expert. I would call you an expert. I mean, many people call you an expert on innovation. I would also call you an expert on history and technology and the future of technology. So this is a topic of strategy. What's your definition of strategy? Obviously, there are many different definitions. How would you define strategy? I see strategy as defining the right objectives and how best to achieve them. Mm. And I think if you think about it in that very simple way, you realize as you unpack it, it's far less simple. Defining the right objectives. Oftentimes we lose our way because we lose sense of why we're trying to do something or what we're trying to create in the future. If we lose a sense of purpose, then we can become focused on more near term or objectives that don't fit into what we're really trying to accomplish. And so I think the first step is understanding what the right objectives are and then how best to accomplish them. And you talk a lot about the objective of a firm. Yeah. We're actually going to get to that a little bit later, but you have a stance on that to tell us about what's the objective, what kind of objective should an organization have? I think that's up to leadership. That's up to those in the organization because businesses, just like nonprofits, by the way, nonprofits are just businesses with a different tax status, whether they notice that or not is another story, but business entities, government entities, nonprofits, they're all just mechanisms in order to try to accomplish something more effectively, generally with other people. And so it should come down to the purpose of those leading the organization. And whether that's a good purpose or the right purpose is another question, but it should come down to that. I also would like to hear about the motivations and structures by which organizations can grow. You developed a quite influential model that I've shared with some clients. And usually when I share it, the room goes silent and people are taking notes and scribbling. <laughs> and I know that it's been a while since you introduced this, but can you tell us a little bit about these four models of corporate entrepreneurship? Sure. Where that came from was a, a colleague, Mike Lippitz, and I were doing research over quite a number of years, actually. The question we were asking was, and this started in the early 2000s, how do large established enterprises try to innovate? And everybody was looking at startups and Silicon Valley and all that. But we wanted to know how are the large established companies trying to do this? What works? What doesn't work? And I won't go into the whole story, but we realized after a few years of this investigation that the critical question you need to answer in order to know how to innovate, meaning structure and funding and all those things, is what are your business objectives? What are you really trying to accomplish? So we looked at a whole bunch of dimensions like rate of technology change in your industry or level of regulation. All of our clients would make this list of different dimensions that affect their business and how they innovate. But we realized that most of them were not under the control of management. And because we wanted a framework that was going to be useful for executives, we needed to pick dimensions that characterize solutions that were under the control of management. It could be under the control of the CEO, but at least it's somewhere in the chain of command, I have the ability to affect the following two things. And those dimensions are who has the money and who has the responsibility, authority, accountability to actually make innovation happen. So who's required to go out every day and try and make innovation happen? 
and who has the money to try and do it. And when you put these two dimensions up, you get, a, of course, a two by two matrix. And what we end up with in that two by two is on the X axis, we've got who has responsibility or accountability to actually drive innovation. And on one side, maybe there are cases where no one really has particular responsibility to do it. They're all maybe encouraged to, or we think it's a good thing for the company, but there's no group set up specifically to try and drive innovation. And by the way, all companies are defined by this. It's called opportunist in the sense that anybody at any organization can try to innovate. You don't have to be in the innovation group per se. As we all know, it's really hard to just go out and try and innovate, but you can try. So we call this lower quadrant opportunist because that's a case where no one's required to innovate and there's no specific money allocated for it. So that's sort of the bottom left-hand side quadrant. Now, the other three are the intentional models for driving innovation within an organization. And by the way, these do not define the whole organization. They define specific initiatives or teams or groups or approaches to innovation, okay? So we're not plotting the entire organization in one of these four, right? Right, right. So you have the x-axis, which is on the left-hand side, no one has any particular responsibility to do this. On the right-hand side, there are specific people with the responsibility to drive innovation. Now on the y-axis, we have money. On the bottom of the y-axis, there's no money allocated earmarked for innovation, or maybe a little bit of money earmarked for it, but not much. And then on the top of that dimension, of course, is lots and lots of money. Now, when you put that together, you get these three intentional models. So let's go to the obvious one first, the one that everybody thinks about. We call it the producer model. That's up in the upper right-hand corner. So that's a group that has its own authority, its own people, team of people dedicated to doing innovation stuff, and they have their own money. And they have, probably have pretty significant amounts of money. So think about Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, or Google has a bunch of groups like this, but there are others that aren't defense or stratospheric tech companies that have these kind of producer teams. You've worked with them. You and I both work with them, right? Now, those are really interesting, but they can also go awry. They can become big money pits. They can be the sort of thing that sets up with big fanfare, and then three or four years later, they shut it down and say, not going to do that again. We know a lot about that. Now, the other two are particularly interesting. You have the enabler model and the advocate model. So the enabler is on the y-axis, there's money available, but no one's required to use it. There are many examples of this, but the classic example would be, say, the CEO at your company says, hey, I have $10 million here in a fund. If anybody has a great idea, we have this simple process, you can come and pitch your idea. And if we like it, we're going to give you some money. Okay, so that's an enabler model. And the advocate model, the one in the lower right-hand quadrant, is my favorite because it's the most non-obvious. It sounds like a train wreck, but if you do it right, it's actually quite powerful. And that's where you have a team of dedicated people full-time focused on helping to drive innovation at your company, but they have almost no money. Now they have enough money to do some business travel and a little bit of research, maybe a quick pilot or something, but they don't have enough money to stand up their own big projects. So what this means, Kaihan, what's exciting about it is that those team members have to go out to the businesses and the functional leaders and find projects that are meaningful to them and help support those projects to get them over the line. And so when you look at this, you realize that the objectives you have, the business objectives you have should drive how you structure and fund innovation. So for instance, if my business objective is to try to invent brand new businesses, maybe they're adjacently related or whatever, or especially if my objective is to attempt to disrupt my core business, 
it's really hard to go to core business leaders and ask for money to disrupt their own business. It can happen, but it's very hard. So for that, you probably want a producer model. Now, on the other hand, if you want to open the doors of innovation for anybody in the company to participate and become engaged and see paths to seeing their things to reality, you're probably talking about an enabler model because then you're providing resources and you're looking for people to step up and get that grassroots energy moving. Now, finally, if your objective is to try and help existing business units fight commoditization or come up with far better strategies and make them happen, figure out how to innovate on their existing business lines or amplify their existing business lines, then you need an advocate model because you need a group of people who are expert at innovation, who are also well-connected outside the company, who will go and find those kinds of projects that are meaningful to current business and functional leaders around the organization. So enabler, producer, and advocate are all fit for purpose, for the objective you're trying to achieve. And to clarify, the activities in an organization could fall across all four of them. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a large organization, I mean, if you're in an organization with, say, a billion or more, you probably should have examples of all three of those intentional models. So let's talk a little bit about what you're working on now, this idea that we talk a lot about of proximity. You know quite a lot about proximity, Kaihan, probably more than anybody else in the world, because you and I are working on a book together, I'm happy to say. So proximity, where did this come from? Well, about six years ago, as you know, I've always been excited by technology and how it changes life and world society and business and all that. And so we're seeing all these digital or digitally enabled technologies cascading across the economy, across all industries. And everybody's all whipped up into a lather about artificial intelligence and Internet of Things and, and blockchain. And I would even include 3D printing or rooftop solar energy generation, distributed energy, which aren't digital per se, but they're digitally enabled. And you really couldn't do 3D printing very well without digital. You really couldn't manage distributed energy very well with that digital. So I was looking at all these technologies and trying to say, are there common underlying dynamics that they drive across industries? And if so, what are they? What are the implications? And I realized from thinking this through that all these digital technologies allow us to distribute sensing, access to data, analytics, agency, production at smaller and smaller levels all around the economy ever closer to each moment of potential demand. And thus, what digital technologies drive across all industries is digital technologies push the production and provision of products and services ever closer to the moment at which they might be demanded in time and space. So actually, as you've added to our discussion, Kaihan, we're talking about proximity zero, P0. So producing anything we might desire. And you and I both know there are lots of philosophical issues with the word desire and satisfy and all that, but let's set those aside. But business is about satisfying desires, perhaps creating desires and demands, but providing supply for the demand. And over time, what digital technologies enable is for us to more and more effectively, efficiently, economically drive the production of products and services closer to that moment where they're actually demanded. We get the P0 in your parlance, which I love. To bring that to life for us, could you fast forward a little bit, pick a domain, and what would that look like, an industry or an area of life? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many examples. When I explain this to people and they start to actually get it, first of all, people before the pandemic would often think, oh, he's talking about better supply chain management. And I just sort of slap my forehead and I'd say, well, you know, no. I mean, that's about 5% of the question. Very important 
5%, by the way. But the pandemic hit, and then people really started to get it. They started to understand the enormity of this trend. And I think it's because they find themselves having meetings with people around the world on screens all the time from their house. So maybe it made it more tangible. But I love examples that are not so obvious. In fact, I always like to, when I'm beating up an idea, I like to think, well, what is a situation where that just probably would not work? And a place that I went, honestly, at the beginning of this exploration, and I think a lot of people would go, would be a highly regulated life and death sort of situation, pharmaceuticals. So my thought at the beginning was, well, it's going to take a really long time for it to hit regulated pharmaceutical drugs. Turns out I was wrong. About two and a half years ago, I met a guy named Dr. Jeffrey Ling, who was a military doctor, a colonel in the army, retired, spent six tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. As a result of that, he saw drug shortages all the time. And by the way, he practices medicine at Johns Hopkins, and they have drug shortages at the hospital, wow. which shocks wow. people. So he said, what if instead of this massive supply chain, I could just produce the drugs I needed right here on site. What if I had a little piece of equipment I could push a button and print a drug? Wow. Now, fortunately for all of us, Kaihan, he moved on to be a program officer at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where essentially they have unlimited money to do crazy stuff. Which model is that? Of your four models, I was just trying to place it into your four models. <laughs> Great question. Yeah. That's the producer model, not just on steroids, but like on LSD, steroids, and cannabis. DARPA is mind-blowing. And so he put tons of money behind this with the team, worked with the team from MIT, and they did it. And it's now a company called On Demand Pharmaceuticals. So literally this thing's about the size of a small refrigerator. They're trending to make it smaller and ever more effective. But right now, the FDA has already approved the production of 14 different drug classes from this thing. And what that means, Kion, is if I need 100 doses of ciprofloxin, so a lot of our listeners probably have had to take Cipro at some point, a very common fluoroquinolone antibiotic. You go to CVS, you buy your prescription. This machine creates exactly the same product that you would buy at CVS with the push of a button. So I need 100 pills. I push a button and a couple hours later, I get 100 pills of Cipro. Now imagine if that were rolled out across the United States or imagine if that were rolled out in developing countries where they don't even have access to even generic drugs often. What if they had this simple capability? Now, you start to think about the impact in the supply chain. When the United States government buys large stockpiles of Cipro, as we do, to prevent against anthrax attack, for instance, it's for public health and safety. So we have stockpiles of Ciprofloxin, but every few years we have to throw it out and we have to buy new because it has a shelf life. But with this new technology, this printed drug, so to speak, with this new technology, we never have to throw out the raw materials because the raw materials are, I don't know, carbon, oxygen. Turns out carbon lasts a really long time on the shelf. So you have unlimited shelf life. You have a distributed network of drug production near where people need it at a moment's notice. And that's going to happen across all of our industries, across all of our lives. That was going to be my question is, what is the raw material? But it sounds like they're actually manufacturing molecules. Yeah. Now, this is true for synthetic chemistry, by the way. The other modality, there are two big areas, synthetic chemistry for making pharmaceuticals, and then their biotech. They're very complex and they're very different. But On Demand is already working on the capability to do this with many kinds of biotech-produced drugs as well, which is even more profound. Wow. Fascinating. I have a ton of other questions, however, reaching the top of our time with you. So I'm going to ask you two questions. One is, 
What's something that you didn't get to say that we should hear? And how can people find you and get to learn more about you and collaborate with you? Well, first of all, Kaihan, I'd love for any of your listeners to reach out. I'm always on LinkedIn, happy to connect there. You can also find me at twinglobal.org. And something that we haven't talked about, there are so many things. I would say I'm increasingly interested in the question of purpose. Not only how do you think about purpose, what does it mean for a corporation, but also for yourself as a human being? And then how do you define it for yourself? How do you discover it? It evolves over time. And then how do you act on it? How do you make it real? So that's something I'm increasingly interested in because I think when we get that answer right, that's the first step of strategy. That's the first step of having the right objectives and then making great things happen. Yeah, that's where it all begins. Rob, thank you so much for being with us and for doing all the thinking and exploring and sharing it with us the way that you do. Thanks for having me, Kaihan. And the same to you. Your ability to bring people together is really second to none. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers. Thinkers.